Okay, now here we are. Uh, Mark chapter uh, 7. Thank you so much, Whitney, for coming back to that. I'm going to read this text, and then we're going to dive in. And um, you, you may feel an internal reaction to this text. And I think we're actually meant to. I think it's meant to generate in us a kind of offense. We might feel a little offended or scandalized uh, by this text. And so I'm giving you the warning that there's a, there's a racial uh, trigger inside of this. Some of you may even experience as a, a misogynistic trigger inside of this text. And so it's really important for us to sort of tune in to our self-awareness, to the anxieties that this text may generate. It's a very important spiritual discipline, in fact, for us to be able to tune into that. It's one of the reasons when we use the simple discovery study questions, you know, so if you wanted to start a, a small group someday, we will train you in six questions that you could use to do Bible study anywhere, anytime, with anyone, and any text. Doesn't that sound great? And one of the questions is, what did you not like in this text? And so as I read this, pay attention to this, what comes up in you, and maybe nothing will come up in you, and pay attention to that as well, okay? Here is Mark chapter 7, beginning in verse 24. Jesus left that place and went to the vicinity of Tyre. He entered a house and did not want anyone to know it, yet he could not keep his presence secret. In fact, as soon as she heard about him, a woman whose little daughter was possessed by an impure spirit came and fell at his feet. This woman was a Greek, born in Syrian Phoenicia. She begged Jesus to drive the demon out of her daughter. First, let the children eat all they want, he told her. For it is not right to take the children's bread and toss it to the dogs. Lord, she replied, even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. Then he told her, for such a reply, you may go. The demon has left your daughter. She went home and found her child lying on the bed and the demon gone. It's a very dramatic story. It seems a bit strange because Jesus is headed to Tyre. He's headed up to the coast. And some have speculated that Jesus had a retreat place in Tyre, that we find him retiring to Tyre to go and have a retreat. In fact, the scripture says he didn't want anyone to know he was there. So it sort of makes sense that maybe Jesus was going there to rest. But he couldn't keep his presence quiet in that place. Both Matthew and Mark record this story. In fact, they surround this event with the same events together in their record of what has happened. 
And we'll mention that later because there's some things we should take cues from. But maybe as I read this text, you did have a sort of, what? Jesus doesn't sound so nice. Jesus doesn't sound so friendly in this moment. What is going on? There's two things that we need to bring with us as followers of Jesus when we come to this text. One of the things I think that's important is to keep in mind that our reading in this text comes because we too, most of us, are Gentiles who have been invited into the communion of God and into the covenant of God. That we come not as Jewish people following Jesus, but most of us come as Gentiles following Jesus. We have been invited in. And that's important to us because as we read this text, we may have an internal offense to Jesus seeming to call this woman a dog. And yet the woman herself gives no indication that she is offended. In fact, she enters into a a play of riddles back and forth with Jesus in this moment. So our reading must be informed that somehow the impulse and move of the gospel, the move of the mission of Jesus, is to fulfill the promise of God given to Abraham. That God tells Abraham, I have called you and will make a people out of you from whom I will bless all the nations, all the ethne. And that Jesus himself is part of that fulfillment And we today are part of that fulfillment. We need to read this text in the greater sense that there are constant conversions happening in the life of God's people. For example, in Acts chapter 10, Peter himself had to move past his preference for Jewish culture and Jewish life and Jewish identity to move into a Jesus identity in which both Jew and Gentile would come under the immersive experience of the Spirit of God. For there at Cornelius' house in Acts chapter 10, the Spirit of God came after the preaching of the gospel, and these Gentiles indicated that they were now experiencing the salvation of God through the speaking in tongues. The Spirit of God was present. And Peter had to say, I see now that God does not show favoritism to any. We need to be able to read this text from the perspective of Paul in Galatians chapter 3, where he says, there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, but all are one in Christ. And so I come to this text and say, well, then why was Jesus so apparently offensive? None of us in this generation or in that generation like to be called a dog, right? Unless it's a cute one. We all want to be cute puppies. Cute dogs, I don't know, maybe you prefer cats. Cat people? Dog people? I mean, we are a bit strange about this. But we know it's sort of offensive to be called a dog. In fact, even in the Jewish world at the time, that was an offense. 
And so what is, we have to ask ourselves what is happening. So we read this text with an incredible sense of the movement of the gospel, the inclusion of all nations under Christ. But we also must read this with a keen sense that Jesus is self-aware. Jesus is quite self-aware of himself. He's also aware of the anxieties of other people. Jesus was aware when he offended other people. I mean, are you aware of when you offend another person? Are there occasions where you are unaware? Yeah, you just happened upon that landmine and boom, it blew up. And you're like, wow, I really offended them. (laughs) My goodness. And then we have to back up and sort it out. Jesus himself recognized all the time that his words, his actions, his inaction, his identity offended someone. And in the scripture, when this word offense is used, it's most often the Greek word called scandalon. It's where we get the word scandal. And so when someone is offended, they are scandalized. That's really different in our thinking, because to be scandalized means to have your private life put on Instagram. And you didn't mean to put it there. Someone else did it to you. You've been scandalized. But the the direction of this term here is that Jesus was self-aware when other people were scandalized by his identity. His words, his message, his questions, his teaching, his actions. Sometimes the disciples thought Jesus was unaware because he was so non-anxious about it. So on one occasion of his teaching, in fact the teaching from last week about not washing hands and not being defiled by stuff outside of you, but defiled by what comes from the heart. In Matthew, the disciples come to Jesus and say, Jesus, don't you know? You have really scandalized the Pharisees. They are so upset with you. And and Jesus says, those blind fools. So he, he was aware On another occasion, Jesus gives some really intense teaching about how to identify with him. And he says, I am the bread of life. And you cannot be part of me unless you will eat my flesh. Ooh. And people got really anxious. They were scandalized by this. So much so that Jesus wanted his disciples to be aware. And he asked them, does this offend you? Are you scandalized? So when we look at Jesus in this setting, we have to say, we have to give him credit. Jesus is intensely self-aware of what happens in relationships. Well, he is God. In times, the disciples said he knew their thoughts. He knew what they were thinking. And so I hold these two realities here, that the movement of the gospel is to the inclusion of all people level ground in front of the cross. Men and women, slave and free, Jew and Gentile, all in front of the cross, 
on level ground. And I also hold here into this experience that Jesus is intensely self-aware. He knows what is going on. And so this pushes me to look harder into this text and say, what's going on? This is one of those things that makes me go, hmm, what's going on? I've had many people come and tell me, you know, Jesus didn't like women. He called them dogs from this text. I don't think that's actually what's going on. In fact, Mark actually provides us with some clues to what's going on if we look a little closer. So would you look a little closer with me again at verse 26? We know that this woman has come as a desperate mother seeking Jesus. But who is she? We don't have a name, but we have some clear descriptors. Verse 26, the woman was a Greek, born in Syrian Phoenicia. So the first thing we know is that she's a desperate mother concerned for her daughter who is oppressed by a demon. An unclean spirit should immediately send you back to last week's lesson. A defiling spirit. An unclean spirit. So now we're looking, this experience has pushed us into the spiritual realm of how are the powers of death at work in the lives of people. First identity, desperate mother. Second identity, she's a Greek. She's a Greek. So her, her um, language was probably Greek as was theirs, because they had all been Hellenized by Alexander the Great, who had come sweeping in from the Greeks before the Romans through this territory and had established their powers there. But she's identified clearly as those who trace their heritage back to the Greek conqueror, Alexander the Great. Third point of identity. She's born in Syrian Phoenicia. Some scholars think what's actually being clued into here is that she has retained a position of power and privilege as the ruling class in this area who had power over the land. She was an agrarian landlord. She had power, she had privilege, she had position, she likely had wealth. And so she comes to Jesus with a request or a demand. How does she come? What is her posture towards Jesus and his identity? It seems that Jesus is pressing in for what he always presses in for, and that is for faith, for trust, for a surrendered life, for an open heart towards him as Lord. He is pressing in with his riddle. He uses a riddle. And 
it, this riddle is frustrating to us because in every way it demands that we still understand Jesus as a Jewish man who is also part of the covenant of God through Abraham. And we tend to want to forget that. Some of us tend from gospel traditions in which we want to sanitize the gospel in some way that we erase identity and particularly Jewish identity. And Jesus would not allow this powerful person with prestige and power and position to not acknowledge that. And so he gives a riddle. His riddle is this. First, let the children eat all they want. First. It reminds us of what Paul said, that the gospel is the power of salvation for everyone. First for the Jews and then for Gentiles. So there's this sense of movement in history, this sense of flow through covenant work that, that is being expressed. And Jesus says, first, let the children eat. You know, when Jesus sent out his disciples, he, he sent them, he says, to the lost sheep of Israel. But later in his great commission, he sends them to all the nations. So there is this sense of movement here in the life and work of Jesus. First to the Jews, and then to the Gentiles. And yet we know that all of many of the most extraordinary expressions of faith in the gospel are there as Gentiles trusted Jesus. And that's partly why this is such an important text. So his riddle, first let the children eat all they want. Let the Jewish people eat all they want. For it is not right to take the children's bread and toss it to the dogs. Now our, our translation here is, is a little limited because the word dog that's used here is a diminutive form that means like little dog, little puppy. Oh, so this is cute. It's not right to take the children's bread and toss it to the puppies. So in our hearts and minds, maybe we read this text and feel offended. Is there any evidence that she was offended? No, there, there's not. She's actually engaging in a tradition of dialogue and engagement. She just gets right into it. This, I am sure, is not the first time she's had an awkward conversation about social dynamics and relationships between Jews and Gentiles, between men and women. Like this, I'm sure this isn't her first rodeo. She's, she's like, okay, look, because look how she replies. She's quick with her wit. 
and with her reply. Lord, she replied, even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. She presents a picture of abundance. She presents a posture of faith. She calls him Lord. She demonstrates a move that all are treasured. All part of this great system in which people are treasured. In Matthew, the disciples record Jesus saying, you have great faith. Mark simply acknowledges her faith and Jesus saying, for such a reply, you may go. The demon has left your daughter. For such a reply. What was in that reply? It was faith. One, she had shown up and begged Jesus to heal. This is the same pleading term that we find, had found earlier in the gospel of Mark in reference to those coming to Jesus. She had taken a posture of kneeling. When her kneeling was challenged to find out if it was real, her faith, she calls him Lord. So she's in this movement from power, privilege, and position of high position, to actually bend the knee and acknowledge Jesus as Lord. This is a very important move for us. Some of us read this text, and we might not immediately identify ourselves as people of power, privilege, and position. And yet Jesus says many, many times, Oh, how difficult it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. Why? Why is it difficult for the rich and the powerful to enter the kingdom of heaven? It's because the entrance into heaven requires the acknowledgement and the humbleness of a saying Jesus is Lord. There are many of us who, in such an engagement, would have actually taken offense and said, well, then, I'll just go. If you won't do it for me, like this. This is the problem of pride. And she actually demonstrates that she was so desperate in her concern for her daughter that she thought that Jesus was the only one who had the power to do something about it. That Jesus had the power over defilement. That Jesus had the power to act even if he was in enemy territory. That Jesus had the power to act even for those who were not Jewish. That Jesus had an abundance. There was enough. There was enough of Jesus and the power. And so she demonstrates great faith. This is important for those of us who have friends who feel offended by the gospel of Jesus. Some of this offense may come from the issue and question of just believing there is God. And maybe in their reading of the text, they come across this psalm that says, it's folly 
for a person to say, there is no God. And they're like, well, that's telling me I'm a fool. And, and so the offense of that pride keeps them from leaning in. I've had other friends tell me that in their journey, like, why, why didn't God choose China? They were around. They were such a great nation. Why didn't God choose a great and powerful nation? Why did he choose this small people? And so they feel offended. That's actually a very old offense. In Deuteronomy chapter 7, God tells and reminds Israel, I have set my affection on you because, not because you were more numerous than other peoples, for you were the fewest of peoples. But it was because the Lord loved you and kept his oath that he swore to your ancestors that he brought you out of a mighty hand and redeemed you from the land of slavery, from the powers of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Know, therefore, that the Lord your God is your God. He is the faithful God, keeping his covenant of love to a thousand generations of those who love him and keep his commandments." And so Israel wasn't chosen because of their greatness. They were chosen simply because God chose them so that he might demonstrate his love and his faithfulness in covenant. And he keeps doing the same today. One of the things that is required in the journey of faith is that you and I are able to hold multiple realities, multiple senses of truth under the lordship of Jesus Christ and that we become self-aware such that we manage our anxieties to be able to trust Jesus in the complexities of life. This text simple in its engagement, is actually complicated. And what human relationships are not complicated? Today, many of us may feel some identity, some empathy with the people of Ukraine because they are facing Russian invaders. Some of us also, in watching people trying to leave the Ukraine, may feel some disappointment because we see racist actions in which those who are not Ukrainian or not white are being left behind and not moved out of the country. They're being pushed off the trains because they're black or not Ukrainian. And so how do we hold those two things there? How do we also hold the command of Jesus to love our enemies, bless our enemies, do good to our enemies, and not get taken up in the enthusiasm of resistance and war such that we see death as deserved? You see, it is the gospel of Jesus that calls us to acknowledge the complicated relationships that are present. 
but also invites us into stepping into a new way in which people that we might have thought were just little dogs are actually treated as whole and delightful children. And at the end of the story, the woman goes home and she finds her daughter at rest, in peace. She had truly become a little child, a loved one of Jesus. What transformation must occur in us so that we see everyone as a little child of Jesus? What transformation must happen in us so that we see that there is an abundance in this world and that there is an abundance of God's grace? What transformation is still required in us that we would acknowledge the offense we feel towards the gospel and towards Jesus and towards the history or towards the church and still surrender our lives to Jesus as Lord? to humble ourselves and call on the name of the Lord. Paul was so enthusiastic about Jesus building his church with Jew and Gentile that he reached back into the scripture and showed us the salvation impulse of God that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Everyone, everyone. So let's live our lives that way. Let us be thoughtful and careful that we are not drawn into old offenses, old movements of history. But let us also be careful that we don't ignore them and say they don't exist. But let's act like we're citizens of another kingdom. A kingdom in which there is an abundance. A kingdom that pushes back against any defiling powers of death. Because this is the impulse and move of the gospel in our lives and in his church. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you that the Lord Jesus does not offer us crumbs, but even if he did, that crumb would save. We thank you so much that the impact and the authority of his life was such that he laid it down. He offered himself as the bread of life so that we might have a seat at the table as invited guests, as treasured friends, as children born of your will and the Spirit. And so we pray that you would again immerse us into your communion and immerse us into a new vision for life and relationships, one that doesn't try to hide or deny the complexities of our histories 
or our power or position or lack of. But instead, may we humble ourselves and walk and serve according to your grace. May we celebrate great faith in you wherever we see it. We pray that you would transform our lives. How hard it is, Lord, for us to enter the kingdom of God. But thankfully, when confronted with that reality, you said nothing is impossible with God. And so we know and trust that you could save us. Whether we have the most deceitful, hardened, or apathetic heart, you could save. And that the transformation would be one in which we move with great freedom and delight and with new life.